Um, I am Palmer Kennedy. I'm one of the youth ministers here. This is Katie Carroll. She is one of my fellow youth ministers and a professional reader today. So she'll be reading for us. Oh, of course. This is Mary Beth. Oh, sorry. I went with the other one. Sorry. Mary Beth over here. Yeah. Okay. All right, so let's get started. We're going to cover the entire book of Jonah, and so I'm going to move kind of quickly. There's a lot to cover, um, but where I want to start um, is like this. If, if I were to ask you um, how, as a Christian, you were saved, how it is that you have a relationship with God, how it is you have the assurance that um, you're not going to face his, face his wrath, but instead are going to inherit eternal life, um, you being the good adventers that you are, hopefully would respond with something similar to the Apostle Paul's words in Ephesians 2, 8-9, through 9, which state, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then if I were to, to probe you further and ask, is there anything that you've done, anything in you, anything, you know, maybe your talents, your capabilities, whatever, anything that you have that might make you worthy of um, God's favor, His grace, and His love, you would, most likely, I hope, especially you young ones that we're in charge of, I hope you would respond with, absolutely not. It's by the sheer grace and mercy of God that I've been saved. And we respond these ways because we know at least intellectually, you know, up here in our heads, that it's, it's the right answer. It's the lessons we were taught in Sunday school or that we hear from the pulpits. And um, the question, though, that I want to actually ask you is, has that knowledge taken root into the depths of your being? Has it affected your soul? Has it transformed your heart? Or is it something that still is merely intellectual knowledge? Does it affect the way you view the world? Does it affect the way you view yourself? Um, does it affect the way you view other people? You know, the people in this room, maybe the people you're friends with, your family, or, you know, maybe the people you don't like, the people who you find irritable or annoying, or people you just have, you know, political ideology differences with. You know, people you just don't really get along with, or even, you know, more substantially, does it affect the way you view people who hate you, people who are enemies? Does it affect the way you view somebody, you know, a member of ISIS, someone who brings death and destruction into this world? Does the gospel, the truth that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, does it affect the way you view yourself and those people? And then more importantly, and I think this is really the question that Jonah's going to pose, does it affect the way you view God? Does it affect the way you see Him? Does it affect the way that you interact with Him? And th these are the questions that the book of Jonah is about. I mean, you may have come here thinking we're going to talk about this, you know, strange sea creature that ate this guy a long, long time ago, this kind of weird story. Um, and we'll touch on that, but the book of Jonah is about a whole lot more. It's an incredible book, and its main theme, the thing I hope that you leave here with, is not some story about a big fish. It's a story about a God whose compassion knows no bounds. Um, and so I hope that that is what we can focus on and leave here with. Um, so before we get into the text really quick, and if you're going to check out during any part, this is the part I would prefer you go ahead and check out, but some of y'all might really be into this, so I'll share it. 
Just a little background to the text. The I'm in seminary, so I love this stuff. Some of y'all might fall asleep right now. You know, wake up once we start reading. Um, so the author and date of the writing, we don't know who wrote it. I mean, we could maybe assume that Jonah did it, but really there's no evidence for any author. I mean, the best scholars in the world still would just tell you, yeah, somebody wrote it. And um, it's been accepted in the Hebrew canon. It's been accepted in the Christian canon. So it's, it's scripture, but we don't know exactly who wrote it. And because of that, we also don't know when it was written. Um, we know the events that went on during the story occurred during the 8th century B.C. because in 2 Kings 14.25, there's a reference to a prophet Jonah ministering in the northern kingdom of Israel during the 8th century. So we know the events went on then. Maybe the book was written during that time. It may have been written later on after people you know, kept telling the stories and passed it on and finally it was put down on paper. We don't really know. Um, as for the literary genre, this is probably where there's the most debate among scholars. There's kind of two camps. One views the book as this historical, um, literal, with a historical and literal, literal approach, basically saying everything that, you know, is depicted in the story actually happened. Then there's another camp that says, no, this story is just a parable meant to teach something, um, similar to Jesus' Good Samaritan story. And I think you can up, you can affirm the authority of Scripture holding either one. I think there are more problems with taking the view of it being a parable than taking a more historical approach. I'm going to approach it as a historical story. Um, I think the only real problem that believing it to be historical poses you, is you kind of have to deal with this you know, idea that a man was eaten by a fish and then spit out. And if you have a purely secular, scientific, westernized worldview, that's going to cause some problems. Um, but with the Christian worldview, it really shouldn't cause any problems because our entire faith is banking on the fact that somebody was raised from the dead. Um, and so, really, if we take a biblical worldview, that shouldn't cause huge problems. But if you choose to look at it as a parable, there are some problems. It doesn't really fit the pattern of parables in the Bible. Um, there's a couple reasons, but the weightiest one is that there aren't any other parables that actually use a historical figure as its main character. And we do know that Jonah was a historical prophet. It would be very strange for someone to just pick somebody out of history and throw him into a story. And so, like I said, I'm going to favor the historical approach, but there's a lot of really good scholars who believe it to be a parable and still uphold the authority of Scripture. Um, with all that said, there's two themes that I believe are minor that you're going to see throughout. They're important, but they are minor. Um, one of them is God's sovereignty. Um, we're going to see him ruling winds and waves. We're going to see him affecting insects and plants. I mean, he, he just rules this whole thing. I mean, he's the governor of the universe. And then a second theme is the assurance of the fulfillment of God's plans and purposes. His ways and his plans and his wills never thwarted, as much as Jonah's going to try to do it. So these are the two minor themes you're going to see. But the main one, and I've already mentioned it, is that we serve a God whose mercy and grace and love, they're extravagant and they're scandalous. Um, and that's what this story is about. It's about a God whose compassion knows no bounds. So with that, um, we're actually going to finally dive into the text. So if your neighbor's asleep, you can wake them up because this stuff actually is really, really good. Um, so if Katie, if you could read, start with Jonah 1, verses 1 through 3. And if you have a Bible, read along. If you don't, we have some extras. 1 through 3? 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. 
he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Okay, so here we have an introduction to Jonah. He's a prophet. Again, like I said, he was serving in the northern kingdom of Israel, which at this point was divided into a northern and southern kingdom. He was a prophet to the north, serving during the 8th century. And God calls him to Nineveh. And for those of you who aren't familiar with it, Nineveh was a it was one of the principal cities in the Assyrian Empire, which at this point was like the greatest empire that existed in the world. It was vast, and it was infamous for its brutality and its wickedness. I mean, the Israelites were terrified of the Assyrians, and ultimately the Assyrians would conquer all of Israel apart from the city of Jerusalem and just leave the land desolate, take people into exile. I mean, they were enemies of the people of Israel. And so here we see Jonah called by God to go be a prophet to these enemies of the people of God. And there's a lot of reasons that we could probably, you know, rationally come up with with why Jonah would have fleed and said, no, I don't want to fled. Why I don't want to do that. Um, One of them could be, you know, well, maybe I'm going to show up and if I, you know, say all these terrible things about them, maybe they'll just, I mean, kill me. I'm an enemy of them. And, you know, maybe that would be a rational reason, but ultimately we'll find out later in in chapter 4 there was a deeper reason why Jonah refuses to go. And I'll just kind of leave that hanging, um, and we'll get to it in chapter 4. I think there's a little bit of irony here. Twice the writer mentions him trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. Um, This isn't someone who, you know, is ignorant of his Bible. Like, this is a prophet of God. This guy knows the Bible. He knows the history of Israel. He knows at least intellectually, knows the God who has called him, and yet he's seeking to flee the presence of the Lord. My mind's first drawn to Psalm 139, where it says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I hide from you? And if we know our Bibles, we know the answer is you can't hide from God. Like, this is a very futile endeavor. Like, it's not going to go well. I mean, we already know that at this point. And yet he flees and um, hops on a ship. And Katie, if you could take us from verse 4 through 16. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us, so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I, may, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, 
O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Okay, so Jonah flees, and here we have the result. <laughs> you know, what happens, how the Lord responds to um, his disobedience. And, I, you know, we see, like I said, one of the minor themes throughout this book, um, and one of the major themes throughout the Bible, the Lord's sovereignty. Like, the Lord is the ruler of, these, of the wind and the waves. He's the one who brought this storm on. And when I first read it, it was very reminiscent for me of Jesus walking on the water, of him calming the storm. We see God who is in charge of everything, like all the circumstances. And then, ironically, we also find this pagan polytheistic crew who has apparently more fear and faith in God than this prophet. We see them fearing God. We see them calling out in prayer. We send them ultimately, like it says at the very end, fearing God exceedingly, and they offer sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And yet this prophet of God is just in this like apathetic, you know, I don't care kind of state. I'm not in any mood to listen to you, God. I know you're trying to call me back, but I'm still in no mood to be about your business. Right? And so what we find here is the separation, and this is going to be a theme throughout, of Jonah's intellectual understanding of God and what he truly believes, what his life indicates that he actually believes deep down, right? And so in verse 9, you can look at it, he claims to fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And yet he's trying, he sought to flee from this maker. He knows the Lord makes the sea, he knows the Lord governs the sea, and yet he's going to use the sea to try to flee from his God, and again, it's going to be futile, and it just reveals, like, he has all these great thoughts about God, he knows all these things, and yet, they have not taken root, there's something in him that still holds out against these truths, um, so Kate, if you could read um, chapter 1, verse 17, through 2, verse 9. Okay. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Okay, so we see, again, the Lord's sovereignty over all things. We see him appointing, you know, the great fish, the, the famous part of the story. He finds this big fish to come and swallow Jonah, ultimately as an act of mercy and kindness to him. He could have 
just left him to the raging sea, could have left him to drown, and honestly would have been very just in doing so. I mean, this prophet has been completely disobedient this entire time. He has not called out to the Lord in desperation. Instead, he just kind of told the crew, like, throw me off. I mean, he's, he's just in, not in a place where he's, in any, he's showing any form of repentance or remorse. And yet God, like I said, you know, if I'm God at this point, I'm kind of tired of this pouty prophet who just is upset because I've sent him to Nineveh. But instead, God shows him kindness and mercy and grace, even though he was completely unworthy of it. And as a result, we find in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 2, he's starting to show some signs of repentance. His heart is softening in the Lord's grace. And so literally, he's been faced with death, and here we find the Lord granting him life just by his sheer mercy and grace, by nothing that Jonah has done. And uh, Kate, if you could keep reading from the end of chapter 2, verse 10, all the way through 3-2. Yep. Thank you. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Okay, so this this is basically the conclusion of the first half of the book. That was like Act 1, and here we have this great moment of suspense. Like there's sort of a weightiness in the air, because God literally gives him the exact same charge like it's the same wording he uses in chapter one he's saying again okay you i told you once you fled i'm gonna we're gonna try this again you know round two go to nineveh exact same charge and i was trying to think of an illustration to kind of um you know give this a little you know put some flesh on these bones here for what this would be like and i was thinking about my own life sort of an instance where i've tried one thing and it went terribly. And then when it's time to try it again, I've kind of learned a little bit. I'm a little wiser because of how horrendously that went. And, you know, now attempt number two goes a little bit better. And it's an embarrassing story. It happened about a month ago. So me and my wife moved into a new apartment about a month and a half ago, right? And we, you know, we have this dishwasher in there. It's a very old dishwasher. We're not used to it. And our previous dishwasher in our old place, it just used little pods. And that's what we're both used to use. We just use those little pods, right? And the dishes were just piling up, piling up, because this dishwasher didn't take the pods. That's all we had. Me and my wife are both in graduate school. We're in classes this summer, and so we've just been really busy. We don't have time to hand wash like this. I mean, it's, it was awful. We had this huge counter covered in dishes, right? And we were getting really impatient. And so finally we were like, okay, well, I mean, we have dish soap. We have a dishwasher. And if you're laughing at this point, you know what's coming. If you're not laughing, I recommend listening because I'm, I'm going to save you some trouble here. So me and my wife, again, both of us, she would take credit for this as well, decided, we're like, oh, we'll load it up. We'll put dish soap in it because it's just liquid soap. You know, what, what could go wrong? It's just going to clean everything. And so we put a ton of dish soap. And we shut it. And, you know, started running it. And background of this story, it was the night of our anniversary. So it was June 27th. So we had gone out to dinner. We'd come back. We were sitting on the couch watching Netflix. And we get, like, this pounding on our door. And, I was, you know, we're confused. I go to the door. I answer it. It's our neighbor who lives below us. And he's like, hey, I have a huge leak. 
that is like pouring into my living room from something in your apartment. And I'm, you know, I'm just confused. I'm like, what, what on earth could this be? And I turn and I have a perfect view of the kitchen. And our dishwasher is like spraying bubbles. The bubbles are stacked about four feet high. The whole kitchen's covered in them. And we just, we just couldn't see them from the living room. Like if you could picture our apartment, we just didn't have an angle of vision on it. And needless to say, our anniversary was not as romantic as we thought it was going to be. We spent the remainder of the night cleaning and like running a fan trying to dry everything. It was awful. We haven't yet. We're probably going to have to pay some money to get some stuff fixed for, you know, the ceiling of the people underneath us. It was awful, right? Okay, so round two, I used dishwasher detergent. And it was great. You know, it worked. I knew what I was doing. And I will never in my life do that again. And hopefully none of y'all will. If you ever do, believe me, you'll, you'll only do it once and you'll learn. Right? And so this is kind of, you know, except on a much grander scale, what's happened to Jonah? Jonah fled. It did not go well for him, right? I mean, this was a near-death experience. It was very traumatic. So round two, God's going to give him another shot. He says, go to Nineveh. Gives him the same charge. Jonah's kind of like, okay, well, didn't really work out. I guess I'll go, right? So he goes. Um, And then it says, I'll read this one uh, real quick, Katie. It says in verse three, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. I don't know why I read that, Katie. Just keep reading through verse 10. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. To what? Ten, please. Yeah. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. Awesome. Okay, so Jonah goes, right? And he says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Not the best sermon I've ever heard, right? I mean, not exactly like, it's not following any of the rules that I was taught or have been taught at Beeson. It's not following any of, you know, you know, these different tools or different methods of producing this just like wowing sermon, right? He just says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And yet, apparently Beeson has been teaching me wrong because the entire city repents and turns to the Lord. Right? I mean, like, I want to pass this on to Andrew Pearson and say, hey, you just hop up there. Say, 40 days. You'll be overthrown in the whole church. There's going to be a revival, right? I mean, it's just a pastor's dream. You would think, like, oh, Jonah would be overjoyed. Oh, my gosh, it worked. Like, you know, the Lord called me to prophesy to these people so that they would repent, and here they have. They've repented. It's amazing, right? And so the people of Nineveh, they recognize their unworthiness. Again, we're meant to see here, there's a, like, the, the Israelites who would have been listening to this story 
this would have been shocking for them. Because Nineveh was full, in their mind, of the most wretched, wicked people on the face of the earth. The people who were known for these horrific war crimes. The people who had been harassing them for years. The people who ultimately, as I've said before, would conquer them. Literally, ISIS. I mean, like, like, picture the people in, like, Iraq and Iran who have been, or Syria, who have been dispelled from their homes because of ISIS. Those people are the Israelites, and they're being told, hey, this major city, this, like, stronghold of ISIS, they all got saved. All of them. Guess what? They get to go to heaven just like you. Like, they've been redeemed. I mean, it's insane. I mean, it's, it's just shocking. Right? And, and the Ninevites, again, it's a stark contrast to the hard-heartedness that we're going to find in Jonah. They don't presume on God's mercy and grace. They plead. There's repentance, and they just say, Lord, I know I'm not worthy. Please relent. Please, Lord. We, we've heard this word of condemnation. We ask you in your mercy that you would show us grace. And he does. Right? And so, you know, you might expect Jonah to be real excited about this. If, if you are expecting that, you're going to be very surprised. Um Kate, if you could read verses 1 through 4 of chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Okay, so here we finally have the answer that you know we asked in chapter 1. Why did Jonah flee? Ultimately, it wasn't because he feared for his life. It wasn't because Nineveh is really far, you know, really long way away. I don't want to walk that far and get there. Right? It's because he knows, at least intellectually, the character of God. And he knows if he goes to Nineveh, there's a chance that they're going to be spared of the punishment that he really wants them to endure. I mean, Jonah wants Nineveh to perish. He wants them to just be brought down the way Sodom and Gomorrah was. He wants, you know, fire and brimstone to just come down on them. And yet, Nineveh's repented. And rather than rejoice over the salvation of an entire city, rather than marvel at the grace and mercy of our God, Jonah is like in a place of just utter despair. I mean, he's pouting. He's prepared to die. He would rather die than live with what he believes is a complete injustice on God's part. I mean, he looks at it and he says, these people, you're going to save them? They're not worthy. Do you know what they've been doing to your people? Do you know what they've been doing to all these nations of the world that they've conquered? And yet God has saved him. Right? And like I said, he intellectually knows this is the character of God. Right? He, in uh, verse 2, where's it at? He says, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Again, this is, this is a prophet of God. He knows the scriptures here. He's quoting all the way back to Exodus 34, 6 and 7, where the Lord declares himself to be gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Jonah knows this stuff intellectually, and yet there's something inside of him, there's something that resides still in him that believes himself more worthy of God's loving kindness than the Ninevites. 
despite the sheer grace that he's been given his whole life, but also recently in being saved from the storm, being swallowed by this fish and then getting spit out, like the Lord's shown him grace and mercy. He gives him another shot. In spite of all of that, he still believes himself more worthy of grace and forgiveness than these Ninevites. And he is appalled at the fact that God would save people such as those. Right? And so he believes a great injustice has gone on. And yet, if we have watched the story of God's people, we know that God's not acting out of character here. This isn't an odd thing for him to do. This isn't strange. This isn't like the one time you can point to in the Old Testament that God has relented because people, you know, have repented. Right? We see it immediately after the golden calf incident. Right? Moses goes up, pleads with the Lord. God, God still says, you're my people. I will be your God. You will be my people. We find it throughout the wilderness. We find it in the promised land. We find it throughout the Old Testament. God continually relents when his people come back to him. When they return from their idols and their sins and repent and come back to him, he relents. And that's who he is. Like That is the character of our God. He shows no partiality. You know, Just like the Ninevites, if a member of Isa, Isa, Isis came before the Lord, repentant. If he runs to the Lord, it's the nature of our God to relent and forgive this person. That's just who he is. And Jonah just can't handle it. He's ready to just, you know, put his cards down, call it quits. He's ready to die because it just so enrages him that God would save these people that he hates so, so much. And I, you know, when I first read this, I was reminded of the prodigal son story in Luke 15, right? Jonah is acting like the older brother. And Nineveh is the younger brother. When the younger brother returns home from his life of sin and wasteful living, he's you know blown his inheritance, he's insulted his father, he's done all these terrible things. He returns home, his father runs to him, his father embraces him, his father doesn't just forgive him, he throws him a party. Like his pa- father is pumped that he has come home. And yet, where you know, what does the older brother do? Right? We know the story. The older brother is ticked off that the father would show such mercy to his younger brother, who he believes to just be so unworthy of his father's affections, right? And what it ultimately shows, there's this dialogue between the father and the older brother. What we learn is the older brother doesn't really know his father. The older brother doesn't know what his relationship with his father actually looks like. The older brother has been working for him. He's been believing that ultimately he is worthy of his father's affections and dead government. He will earn it. And this younger brother hasn't. And so how dare this younger brother be embraced when I am not? Right? And that's what Jonah's doing. Jonah is ticked off that this younger brother, that Nineveh, has been embraced by his God. Because he doesn't understand that his relationship with God as well relies only on the grace and mercy of God. Um, Could you read the final bit, 5 through 11? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat, un- he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from this, his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. 
And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Okay, so Jonah is still kind of in denial at this point. He basically finds a vantage point where he can hopefully, in his mind, watch the destruction of Nineveh. He's still hoping that Nineveh is going to be destroyed. I mean, he still just can't fathom this thought that God um, would relent. And, I mean, ultimately, I mean, he throws a fit. He's acting completely unrationally. He gets upset about this plant dying, and yet he cares not for all these people within Nineveh who God has chosen to you know, redeem and reconcile to himself. And this is where the story leaves us. I mean, it, it's very similar to the prodigal son story in that we don't know what happened to the older brother in the prodigal son story. We don't know if ultimately he came around and began to understand his relationship with his father, who's meant to represent our heavenly father. We don't know here if Jonah ultimately, you know, finally got out of his little temper tantrum and realized, you know, woe is me, I too am just like Nineveh, in need of grace and mercy. We don't know. And, you know, I think that's, it's a question that gets left to us. Also, how, how do we react when this happens? And, you know, as I, I love Jonah because I see myself all over this story. I'm both literally and figuratively an older brother. I mean, I have a younger sister, so literally, but also figuratively like that, that is my tendency in my relationship with the Lord is to act like an older brother. You know, my when things aren't going well, my gut reaction is just to, you know, strap up my boots and just get rolling. You know, like, get to work. I will read my Bible so well. I will be faithful in my quiet times. I will do this, that, and the other. And I will make God love me because he will, he will have to. You know, I will deserve it at that point, more so than all these other people, right? I mean, that, you know, it's, it's sick and it's wicked, but that's what's inside my heart sometimes. You know, that's what resides in me, and that's what we see in Jonah. And Jonah, I think it's, it's beautiful. It, it's similar, again, similar to the prodigal son story. It serves as sort of a litmus test for people like me. You know, it, it reveals to me where my heart is in relationship to God. It reveals to me how much the gospel has or has not actually taken root in me. I mean, I, I mean, I get it up here. I can tell you the answers. I've been in seminary a while. I get, you know, I can, yes, I'm saved by grace through faith. Yes, I can tell you that. But like, has that affected me? You know, some days it has. Some days it, you know, it really hasn't. Right. And so Jonah serves as a litmus test for those of us who struggle with that. Those of us who just naturally tend towards being an older brother. It reveals to us something about our own hearts. Right? When God shows mercy to someone we deem completely unworthy of it, the way we react reveals something about our hearts. Right? And so what I want us all to do, a little exercise, right? Everyone take a moment and I want you to think of just the most despicable person you can think of. Person who just drives you crazy. Maybe you know him personally, maybe you don't. Right? Maybe you're a hardcore conservative and so you just hate Bernie Sanders. Or maybe you're a hardcore liberal and you can't stand Donald Trump. Like, whatever it is, think of someone you can't stand. If you're having a hard time, think of a member of ISIS. Think of someone who is part of Al-Qaeda. Think of someone who just drives you insane. Someone that you think 
is completely unredeemable. Think of just the tax collectors, the prostitutes of this world. I want you to just kind of hold that person in your mind for a second. Everybody, everybody there? Right? Okay, so what if God redeemed that person? Like, what if that person came to you and said, I have been redeemed by God? By the sheer mercy of God, I will not face his wrath for all that I've done. Instead, it's been placed on Christ. I have been reconciled, and I'm an inheritor of the kingdom just like you. Like, what, does that, what does that do in your heart? I'll be really impressed if it just causes you to rejoice over God's greatness. Right? That's not our tendency. And, and that's a problem. Right? And it will cause resentment. It will always cause resentment until we realize that just like that member of ISIS, just like that member of Al-Qaeda, just like this person down the street we can't stand, just like that neighbor who can't keep their yard clean or whatever, you know, like just like all these people that we just would be shocked if God chose to save, just like them, we will be resentful until we realize that just like them, we too are Nineveh. Like, we may have this tendency of Jonah in our heart, I know I do, to think myself more worthy than others, but ultimately we are all Nineveh, deserving of his wrath, his judgment, his, you know, the eternity separated from him. And yet, you and I, not only are we Nineveh, we're also living proof that God redeems Nineveh, that God chooses to save that which appears unredeemable. I mean, I look at my heart, and if I'm honest with myself, if I can believe that God would save somebody like, like me, who has the thoughts that I sometimes have, who has these just nasty tendencies that appall me sometimes when I take a step back and look at them, if I can believe that, of course God would save Nineveh. Of course he would. That's who he is. That's who he's been to me. Right? I mean, if we look at ourselves, we learn that God's compassion has no boundaries. I have a weak voice, so I'm going to have to talk a little louder, right? Oh, perfect, good. Right, we know that God's compassion has no boundaries. I mean, there is no limit to His favor, His grace, His mercy for those who will come to Him. And you and I are living proof of that. And so, we're out of time, but when we leave here, I, what I hope you've seen in Jonah is not some story of a big fish, not some story about some ungrateful prophet, but I hope you're, you know, walk out of here amazed that God would save a Nineveh like you and me amazed that God would save wretches like us. And as that sinks in, ultimately, it affects the way we interact with the world. We look at the Ninevehs in the world and we say, God can save you, and if he does, I'm going to rejoice over it because I'm no more worthy of it than you are. Right? Okay, I'm going to pray for us, and then we can get out of here. Um, Lord, we thank you for your um, scandalous and extravagant grace. We thank you that um, while we were still sinners, you died for us. Um, that we are completely unworthy of you, and yet you regard us as your saints, as your children. You have adopted us, um, and that we get to spend eternity with you. And Lord, I, I pray that you would just transform our hearts with that truth, that you would um, teach us to view this world as you see it, to know no one is unredeemable, and to rejoice when you reveal yourself as compassionate and loving. We love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.